So here's what we can agree on. You know, a parent's love for their child, uh, that someone's life was taken too early. Those are just human things that we can agree on. Shane and I both like sports. We go watch soccer games together. We have fun. From that foundation, we can get to politics, I think. The, the, the political conversation is easier when you create shared bonds over just human things that we can all agree on. Is there a bipartisan path forward on meaningful climate policy in the United States? And if so, what does it look like? Those are questions we've been grappling with all podcast season, and now we're putting them point blank to our Democrat and Republican co-hosts. Welcome to Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America. I'm Julia Piper, senior editor with Green Tech Media, and as always, I'm joined by Brandon Hurlbutt, our Democrat, partner at Boundary Stone Partners, and former chief of staff at the Department of Energy under Secretary Stephen Chu. And by Shane Skelton, our Republican, partner at S2C Pacific, and former energy advisor to House Speaker Paul Ryan. So this is our solution show, and it's actually our final episode of Political Climate for 2018. This doesn't have to be goodbye, though. You can always catch up on previous episodes you may have missed, including interviews with Senator Martin Heinrich, top Trump EPA official Mandy Gunasekara, Mary Nichols, chair of the California Air Resources Board, and many other decision makers and thought leaders in climate and energy. And then look out for a whole new season in 2019. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So back to this show. We'll kick it off with a rundown of the latest news headlines and issues to track into the new year, including a shakeup on the Senate Energy Committee, a new carbon fee and dividend bill, a utility voluntarily targeting 100% clean electricity, and a brief note on the National Climate Assessment. Then the pressures on Brandon and Shane to share their climate solutions. We're going to get both a big picture vision and some specifics around what they think decision makers can get done in the coming years. We'll wind down the show by reflecting on our takeaways from season one of this bipartisan podcasting effort, where things may get a little personal. And then, of course, we'll cap it off with our Say Something Nice segment, where our Democrat and Republican co-hosts have to say something redeeming about the opposing political party. Before we get into all that, I have to say thank you to Shane, though, for a lovely dinner at Nobu the other day. That was the result of our bet over Beto versus Cruz. Shane, I feel like we just we bankrupted you. I didn't see the bill, but uh, I'm not sure all three of your kids are going to get to go to college after that supper. Yeah, at least two of them will still get to go. You'll never see the bill, but also my wife will never see the bill. But I did have a great time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't mention, don't mention that. Shane is a man of his word, and his wallet is a lot lighter after that night. <laughs> hey, it was a lot of fun. We had a good time and um, actually talked about some of this stuff, but talked about other stuff too, which is really nice, you know? Yeah, we talked about something other than politics for at least a little while. It was super interesting. We By forgot. the way, Shane doesn't eat vegetables. Yeah, literally does not eat vegetables. <laughs> fun fact, meat only. <laughs> Or fish. And if you want to go to Nobu and spend too much money, order only like steak meals. That'll get you there. That'll get you there. <laughs> That'll do it. Um, great. Well, not so much the low carbon meal, but uh, a delicious one nonetheless. So thanks for that, Shane. Okay, I want to dig into this week's show, and we're going to start with some of the latest headlines. The first topic being the Mansion Committee drama. West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin is currently poised to become the top Democrat on the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee. That is important because the committee has wide-ranging jurisdiction over the nation's energy policies, which clearly have an impact on global warming, and because Manchin in particular is a staunch backer of his state's coal industry. Progressives, no surprise, are outraged. 
So why is Manchin even up for this role? Well, it is sort of like a game of political musical chairs based on seniority because that is how the Democratic Party organizes political leadership. It starts with Senator Maria Cantwell of Washington. She is currently the top Democrat on the Energy Committee. She may move over to the Commerce Committee, which is a role with more authority, a bigger position. She would be replacing Senator Bill Nelson of Florida, who lost in the midterms. So that will likely free up the ranking member space. Next in seniority is Ron Wyden, who plans to stay on finance, followed by Senator Debbie Stabenow of Michigan, who shown no indication of leaving her top spot on the Agriculture Committee. That leaves Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont, an independent who we know caucuses with the Democrats. He currently holds the top spot on the Budget Committee and has so far given no indication that he wants to leave it. So if he rejects the move up and over to energy in favor of remaining on budget, that leaves Senator Manchin next in line. So the only other option here is for Democratic caucus leader Chuck Schumer to intervene, but that would very likely create a bit of a stir. So Brandon, what are you hearing from Democratic camps? Outline this from your point of view. Well, people are concerned that Joe Manchin would be the ranking member on this committee. And then if we take back control in 2020, he would be the chairman of this committee. And so there's a way to prevent this now. If Senators Sanders or Stabenow would step up and become the ranking member on this committee, it would solve the problem. But they're not. So, Julia, I think the issue here is, you know, Bernie Sanders just held a town hall on climate change uh, where he had special guests like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Uh, it was a Facebook Live online town hall that got a lot of attention. So he's clearly making this issue a, a priority. Uh, and we have this uh, scenario where Joe Manchin, who famously, uh, when he ran for office, had a, a campaign advertisement that shot holes in cap and trade. So he's probably the least environmentally friendly Democratic senator. And so Bernie Sanders has the ability to become the ranking member on Senate Energy and Natural Resources, but is declining that for the Budget Committee, which is causing um, issues with the environmental community. Yeah, so th this is actually really interesting in that this is a selfish play. I personally would prefer Bernie Sanders be um, the Democratic lead on the Budget Committee than the Energy Committee for a number of reasons that will become obvious, you know, as we discuss more of these uh, details about the Green New Deal and et cetera. But what it is, is it's an entirely selfish play. The Budget Committee in both the House and the Senate is a really interesting committee in two ways. Uh, first, you have jurisdiction over everything and nothing at the same time. And what I mean by that is, your jurisdiction is unlimited in that you can talk about energy, you can talk about healthcare, you can talk about telecom, you can talk about uh, you know, schools, you can talk about housing. You have all that jurisdiction. You don't have any legislative authority in those areas. So you can devise a platform, but you can't implement a platform. And the second reason it's, it's interesting is that budget committees are only as powerful as their chairman. And so budget committee would typically be considered you know, a B or C committee behind the tax writing committee and the energy committee and maybe the finance appropriations appropriations committee but you know people like paul ryan when i worked for him he was the lead voice on policy on the house so he got to use the budget committee as a vehicle to taking over the republican platform and that's where bernie's being selfish he's far more concerned about bernie sanders selling his vision of what a democratic government should look like or a democrat socialist government should look like than he is about getting into the weeds and legislating on energy issues. Again, I'm, I'm happy that's the case, but logistically that's the outcome. 
He's promoting Bernie. Well, socialism isn't selfish inherently, so clearly that's wrong. <laughs> it's all about distributing wealth. Come on. But I take your point on his well, personal that's the irony, right? Isn't that the irony? Is that he wants to be in a position where he can't do any of the things he says he wants to do, but what he can do is get a really loud megaphone to tell people how great it would be if he could do it. But arguably, he is preparing for a 2020 presidential run, and so he's making some short-term calculations around, you know, expressing a, a vision, setting that up for the run in 2020 when he thinks he could maybe have an even bigger impact. So he's playing a longer term game. Isn't that a fair point? It's totally fair. And frankly, I'm glad he's doing it. Um, I'm just making the point that it is, I think it is selfish because most people who would vote Bernie have a pretty good sense of what he stands for. But what he doesn't have to do in budget committee is make the tough decisions that the energy committee is going to have to make. So if there is some sort of green new deal that gets through the house, so there is even energy efficiency legislation or, you know, sort of bipartisan centrist energy legislation, he would have to work with Republicans to move that across the finish line. And while that might be good for the country, it wouldn't be good for his brand. Brandon, why doesn't Chuck Schumer just put someone else in, in that role on the, on the energy committee? Why let Manchin take the helm based on the seniority rule? Why not throw that out the window and just you know put in who they think is going to align on, on the Democratic values? I'm not the Hill expert like Shane, but my understanding is that the seniority system is sort of an ironclad system. And if you make an exception in this case, it unravels the whole thing and it could be chaotic. So, uh, but what people are concerned about is that even if we get back, you know, control of the entire Congress and the presidency in 2020, which is what we're trying to do, if Manchin is the chair of Senate Energy and Natural Resources, there's a concern it might even, with Democratic control, become harder to do the things that we want on environmental and energy policy. Julia, from a structural perspective, these are chamber rules. These aren't, this isn't law. So the seniority system is a product of Democratic decision making. Republicans don't use it. Um, Republicans use seniority as a guideline, but they're not binding. And this goes back to the Democratic caucus being more diverse than the Republican caucus. And so you've got a lot of, you know, black lawmakers in the Democratic caucus. You've got women and other types of minorities. And their concern has long been that they'll get passed over by, you know, if it was a majority of white men, for example, they might put one of their buddies in a chairman slot. So the seniority system is heavily supported by the Congressional Black Caucus and other minority groups who want to make sure that if they, you know, continue to get reelected and they serve their time in the House or Senate, they're going to get their opportunity to lead. They're not going to be pushed aside for someone else. So it was well-intentioned. It just becomes, you know, a little bit impractical in situations like this. I thought another little interesting news nugget is that Bernard McNamee, who is the nominee by the Trump administration to the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, has been going through hearings on Capitol Hill and actually won Manchin's vote in committee, which is notable because McNamee is the guy who wrote the Department of Energy report to bail out coal and nuclear power plants. So now he'd be going to FERC where he could oversee any effort to prop up these struggling facilities. Uh, which is very controversial for obvious reasons. And then this video emerged of McNamee actually saying that the fight between fossil fuel companies and environmental groups is a, quote, battle between liberty and tyranny. And he denies climate change uh, very explicitly in that video. So interestingly, Manchin voted for McNamee, saw the video, and then decided to 
vote against him in, in the end. And so I thought that was interesting that it kind of shows where Manchin falls on the line. There are certain lines he won't cross. He saw the video of climate denialism and said, I, I can't condone someone who, who goes that far. So just a bit of a barometer on Manchin and sort of how he's thinking about climate issues. And it actually raises a question in my mind around whether Manchin could play an interesting role in transitioning communities off of coal if he did become the committee chair. But of course, that's to be determined. I still think this guy's going to get confirmed from what it appears. And yeah. that is a problem. <laughs> right. So McNamee did advance regardless of Manchin's vote because of uh, Republican votes. And the last thing I'll say on this um, Senate committee leadership point is uh, we've seen people in the Twitter sphere calling Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in the House, a representative elect, for not doing enough to, I guess, control who takes control of the Senate committee, which I thought was such an interesting and strange point because she, again, isn't even in her office yet officially and doesn't have any jurisdiction over that decision making. And yet we're seeing people say she's all talk, no action. But I'm not sure what she could even do here other than just talk about it, which she has done in participating in protests and, and the like. So I just thought that was interesting how people want more from her and are expecting even more solutions than she could possibly give, I think. Yeah, Julia. And I think this is part of just sort of the media culture that we're in. And I'm not just talking about you know normal media, but people's ability to use Twitter. You set unrealistic expectations for someone in a good way that can be maybe helpful, as you guys would say, in sort of moving the needle. You know, I don't agree with that. But also, once you start setting unrealistic expectations that don't have any sort of grounding in fact or law or you know practical uh, ability, then stuff just gets weird. Like there's no way she could have intervened and made Bernie Sanders uh, the chair of an energy committee. That wouldn't make any sense. No House member could do that. No member elect could do that. No one outside the Senate could do that. So the, the, the expectations that people put on young sort of political rising stars are just astounding to me. And I think this is a relatively new phenomenon. Yeah, I think this is an interesting point. Uh, just as a, an update there, we talked about the Green New Deal in our last episode. There are now 18 Democrats in Congress and nearly 100 powerful community environmental groups, economic justice organizations that have all backed the call for a select committee on a Green New Deal, which is what Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has called for. So the work continues with AOC and her team. Meanwhile, we're seeing other lawmakers who have not signed on to the Green New Deal actually speak out more on climate policy, including Chuck Schumer, who will talk a little bit more about later. Right now, I wanted to briefly touch on the fact that a bipartisan group of legislators in the House has introduced a carbon fee and dividend bill. This is a concept we talked about previously with the Citizens Climate Lobby. And this is something everyone thought was effectively dead after the midterms when we saw moderate Republicans like Carlos Cribello not win re-election. People said that proved that bipartisan solutions on climate don't work. There's no point in reaching across the aisle. And yet you had this group of Democrats and Republicans coming together post-election and putting climate back on the agenda. Of course, we know it's symbolic. Nothing's going to get passed in the lame duck session, but it is symbolic nonetheless. So, Brandon, what do you make of the fact that this bill was at least introduced? I'm encouraged because there was this notion that if Curbelo lost, that there wouldn't be any Republicans to work with on this issue. And so this shows that there are some Republicans in Congress still willing to step up uh, and support policies that would help deal with climate change. So maybe this isn't the right policy, uh, but at least somebody is volunteering to introduce legislation to be in the conversation. Yeah. And just for reference, it was Republican representatives Brian Fitzpatrick, who we talked about before in Pennsylvania, and Francis Rooney in Florida, who uh, who stepped up on the Republican side. And Representative Ted Deutsch, he was the Democrat who uh, introduced this bill. Shane, any quick thoughts from you? Yeah, I just think it's fun to see it introduced. I honestly don't know if I support it or not, and I'd have to examine it further. But we did get a good opportunity 
to talk to the um, Citizens Climate Lobby in, in previous episodes and, and offline, and they explained you know where this type of legislation came from, where the idea came from for the um, carbon fee and dividend. And I kind of thought it's actually a pretty interesting idea, but I don't see how you get a, you know a group of members of Congress to actually move forward with this. So the fact that a bipartisan group of people introduced it, it's obviously not going to get a vote this Congress, um, but I think it is a really interesting start to a discussion that's going to need to be had at some point. Another news headline I wanted to touch on is the fact that XL Energy, which operates in eight different U.S. states, has voluntarily set a goal to become 100% carbon-free electricity by 2050. This is historic. It is the first time that a utility has acted on its own to set this kind of uh, a target. Usually it's something policy-led, like in California, where the legislature set the 100% clean electricity goal. Uh, and here you have utilities stepping up. So, you know, you guys, I know day to day work a lot with industry. Um, Shane, let's go to you first. What do you think about a utility taking charge here? Um, I think it's awesome. I mean, I think we, we had this discussion when uh, California passed their bill. And I think what I said at the time, something close to, I like the idea of 100% clean energy. I don't like the idea of a legislature or a regulatory body telling companies what they can and can't do if the companies don't believe they can do it. And at that time, we hadn't heard a lot of feedback from the California utilities about how practical SB 100 was. This is very different than that. This is a utility saying, here's what we can do, here's what we plan to do, and we're going to do it. And to me, that's very exciting because that means they believe they have the, the know-how, the capital, the technology they need to do this. And, and that, that's just fantastic. This is how I think these things need to unfold, maybe with some help from the government, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But this is exactly how you want to see your power sector reduce carbon emissions. I agree with most of what Shane said. We'll get to the role of government uh, in our solutions part of the episode, but I think this is a major milestone that a company without the government, an energy company without the government said, we're going to get to 100% clean energy on our own. Yeah, I think the politics are still present here because we know that the governor-elect in Colorado, Jared Polis, ran on a platform of 100% renewable electricity. So I think Excel saw that. They knew that renewables, a 100% renewables mandate would be very, very hard to meet. At least a clean electricity target gives them some flexibility. Uh, that includes nuclear. And I think almost more importantly is carbon capture, sequestration, and utilization. Excel just purchased some natural gas plants in Minnesota. I don't think they're backing off of fossil fuels, but they are banking on CCUS becoming compelling between now and 2050. And I think they saw in the immediate term, the Colorado uh, state legislature, which is heavily democratic, pushing them on renewables without maybe the industry first perspective and thought that would be way too hard. Let's get out ahead of this and set our own target and show that we're aligned. And you saw uh, Polis commenting uh, in all of Excel's press materials. So clearly, I think this this had the intended effect of getting him on board and maybe preempting some more stringent mandates and, and avoiding the kind of Arizona style fight where you had a ballot initiative that would have required the utility to go 50% renewables, which would have really jeopardized the uh, Palo Verde nuclear power plant that Arizona Public Service operates. So that initiative failed, but the utility had to spend millions and millions of dollars fighting it. So in Excel's case, I think they saw that, got out ahead of it, and found a path to give them more flexibility. And Julie, I, I think... This is interesting in that a utility that covers you know several states, a major utility, is saying you know we can get to 100% clean energy. Meanwhile, you have Trump you know denying uh, the National Climate Assessment, saying he doesn't believe it, and sending people over to Europe to talk about coal. It, the contrast couldn't be more clear between what is happening in this country between scientists and energy companies 
and policymakers and Donald Trump and his administration. Yeah. I mean, so far, what his administration has attempted hasn't worked specifically on coal. I think something like 11 and a half gigawatts of coal have retired under his uh, administration. So clearly, the efforts thus far can't stop the market forces that we're seeing. That's not a new story, but uh, interesting to see the administration still doubling down on this pro-coal agenda. It's alarming how detached from reality he is. Well, as you mentioned, Trump outright denied his administration's own national climate assessment report, which was released quietly the day after Thanksgiving. For reference, the climate assessment is compiled by hundreds of experts across more than a dozen U.S. agencies and is mandated by Congress to be released every four years. The latest report warns that climate change will impede economic growth, spread diseases, increase air pollution, among other rather unpleasant things. Shane, please wrap up our news section with your thoughts on the climate assessment. Yeah, I'm always like a broken record on this stuff, but I just think we're, I don't mean us here right now. I mean, as a general rule, we're having the wrong discussion. I I don't know the science nearly well enough to say how great or or not great the climate assessment was. It seems pretty dire. Um, People are arguing about, you know, what models were used and, and how the outcomes were derived. And I would just sidestep that entire discussion and say, what is clear from that assessment and the IPCC report and other reports, you know, the first three climate assessments is we have a problem and whether or not the models project, you know, the outcome of that problem too harshly or too softly uh, is irrelevant to me. We have a problem and we need to now almost immediately start taking steps that we can take to solve and or mitigate that problem. So I wouldn't spend you know, any of my time if I were uh, serving in government or, or in the media sort of debating how severe the problem is, I would just look at it as, okay, whether or not I agree fully with the findings of this report or not, I think the body of evidence is that we have a problem and let's start thinking about what solutions we want. And then, you know, secondarily of that pool of solutions, what can we actually get done? And that's how I would view it. Well, I think solutions is the key word there. And that is exactly what we're going to get into right now. Now it's time for an epic constituent services section of the show, which is where we take a question from one of our audience members. But in this case, it's actually dozens of our audience members, because over the course of this season, lots of people have asked us, you're talking about all the issues in the news, but what are your solutions? What do Brandon and Shane think is actually doable? Um, So this is our time to finally answer those questions. I wanted to frame it by starting big picture, uh, and I'm going to use some quotes to illustrate that. The first one comes from former governor of California, Arnold Schwarzenegger, who I caught up with at a recent event and asked him what he thought about getting policy advanced. Here's what he had to say. Despite California's success, there's still this partisanship, this division and pushback on clean energy policies. How do you get people at the table and have a civilized dialogue in this partisan moment? Well, I think it's very important that we let people know that it is not a partisan issue. And that in general in life, you can get more accomplished if you're inclusive. And that's also when it comes to oil companies. I don't villainize oil companies for producing oil. We villainize them when they have an oil spill or when they verschmutz the whole world with pollution. You know, that, then, then you criticize them. But for producing oil, no. We want to bring the oil companies and all the, the fossil fuel companies into the mix and to make them slowly invest in green technology. They should be part of the whole thing. So we don't want to villainize and attack anyone. And the same is also with Democrats and Republicans. It's the wrong way to go. The only way you get things done is if everyone works together, listens to each other's needs, and then understand it and then meet somewhere and get things done. 
So the governor there talking about bipartisanship, reaching across the aisle, how that's valuable. Another take comes from David Roberts at Vox, where he had an article post-election talking about how Democrats need to go all in. They need a no-compromise kind of attitude, saying that the process should not be aimed at developing bipartisan legislation meant to actually get votes and pass. No climate legislation will pass in this Congress, he writes. So there's no need for Democrats to pre-compromise, to concoct some bill designed to please the imagined good-faith fiscal conservative, crusty myths about balanced budgets and pay-fors, and the sanctity of markets. There's no need to bend over backward to line up a few token Republican sponsors to impress the nation's editorial pages with how bipartisan it all is. Those kinds of concessions gain Democrats nothing, no credit, no respect, no leverage, and certainly no legislation, so they should stop making them. So with with that framing in mind, you know, Shane, let's go to you. What would be your prescriptions on policy paths forward? You can start big picture, but then I want to get into some details. Yeah. So, I mean, addressing the question that you asked, which will probably be the easiest question that we get to discuss um, on this podcast about, you know, looking at Arnold Schwarzenegger's perspective and, and David Roberts, my answer would be pretty flippantly. One of them ran the most populous state in the United States, uh, and one of them likes to opine on Twitter. So, you know, as far as who I trust more to manage large scale solutions, it's clearly Governor Schwarzenegger. And then, you know, what I'm about to walk through will betray exactly why I feel that's the case, because almost exactly what um, David Roberts said we should not be doing are, are the fundamental aspects of, of my solutions platform. But I think about it in two ways. So you have to think about solutions in form first and then in substance. For me, in form, there's a number of goals that should be met. One, a solution should enhance economic growth or at least prevent contraction of economic growth. And I know that's a dicey thing to discuss, but when you look at the IPCC reports and, and the climate assessment, then you can start having a discussion about, well, maybe this doesn't grow uh, GDP, but we could you know, uh, forego some harm to GDP in the future. Uh, two, it should be market-driven. And three, it should be government should be involved when necessary and or helpful. And I wanted to put those two together because when I say market driven, I don't mean it has to be libertarian and government shouldn't be involved. I mean, government and markets should interact in a way that allows them to get where they want to go. So one example that, you know, you guys have used in the past is I didn't like SB 100, but it went from, you know, 100 uh, percent renewable to 100 percent clean. And that's an area where I'm guessing industry and government work together to get there. So those are my key principles. And then overarching all of that, government has a role to play. And these things cost money. And they're going to cost the government money. And we need to become okay with that. Uh, but we also need to understand that to get them through, there's going to have to be some offsets. I like the idea of an expensive program. I like the idea of something big that really gives us something to shoot for. But I know that to pass legislation, it's just not going to happen without finding offsets. I worked on the budget committee. I've seen every line in the federal budget, literally. I mean, there are thousands of pages of Excel docs. Anyone who says there's no room to cut in a $4.5 trillion budget isn't being honest. And I was thrilled when we talked to Senator Heinrich uh, when he mentioned that he would be willing to do that. Now on substance, when we talk about GHG reductions, in my view, we have to think about three different greenhouse gases. You have the more intense greenhouse gases, including hydrofluorocarbons and methane, and then you have, obviously, the highest quantity greenhouse gas, which is carbon. And you can't think about one without thinking about the others, because I think this is the type of uh, problem that needs to be solved in as comprehensive a way as possible. Um, so first, I'll tackle the easy ones. The hydrofluorocarbons um, are easy because you can do it in an industry-friendly way. I think methane is easy because you can do it in an industry-friendly way. I think um, we're going to probably have some disagreement about that. So I'm going to tackle those two first. Uh, with hydrofluorocarbons, 
Listeners might recall that uh, maybe a few months ago now, when we had Amy Harder on the show, we talked about the Montreal Protocol and how what the Montreal Protocol did was it created a system that was able to solve the ozone crisis, the ozone depletion crisis, by phasing out ozone-depleting substances. And it replaced them with a substitution chemical. This chemical is hydrofluorocarbon. There's a number of different hydrofluorocarbons, but that's the primary greenhouse gas. And so we solved one problem, but we might have exacerbated another. So after that, there was the Kigali Amendment to the Montreal Protocol. And the Kigali Amendment was meant to address the global warming impact of these replacement chemicals. And so the amendment's been agreed to. It has not been ratified by the United States. It has been ratified by some other countries. And the United States now has to figure out what to do. Do you submit the treaty to um, the Senate for ratification? And this is one of those areas where I really want to focus on substance over form. I think this is a problem that can get solved. Uh, a lot of Republicans want to solve it. A lot of Democrats want to solve it. Industry really wants to solve it. And there's really not any disagreement among those three groups that I listed about how they want to go about it. That doesn't mean every Republican and every Democrat and every industry member. For the most part, by and large, they want to solve it. So this is an area where you can submit the treaty for ratification. You could work out a legislative solution that deals with actual emissions of these chemicals and some sort of industrial phase down. I don't care how you get there, but this is something that we can do now. This is something that can be done within the next year. And if you believe the scientists, which I do, this could account for a half a degree Celsius in avoided warming. And while, you know, to people who don't pay much attention to climate, that doesn't sound like a big deal. That's one third of this catastrophe that we're talking about with, you know, a degree, a degree and a half Celsius. So uh, that's something that I think is important and something I've talked about a lot before. And that's something that I think is actually achievable in the near term. Uh, next, methane emissions. Our listeners are not going to like my solution here. It is factually accurate, but it still might not be the most palatable. Uh, there's a lot of methane that's flared or released at oil sites because when you're there to drill for oil and you don't have anything to do with the gas, um, it's considered an associated product and it goes up into the air. So it's either flared or it goes up as is. I actually think that being a little more uh, thoughtful about pipeline permitting policy and giving this methane a revenue stream, finding a way to build pipelines quicker, more effectively and faster to get that methane into a, you know, make it a commodity that someone wants to buy and burn, which has fewer emissions than released raw. So um, methane, again, I realize that that's not, you know, an, the environmental solution, but I do think it is a climate solution if you're able to differentiate. Shane, would, would you support federal investment in technologies that can capture that methane and turn it into clean electricity? Absolutely. 110%. I think the methane capture regulations of the past have proven to be, you know, at least from industry's perspective, burdensome and an added cost. And, you know, we, we've had that discussion about regulations and where to draw the line. But absolutely, if the government would invest in some R&D or some sort of technology that could make uh, you know, that a value stream, I would 100% support that. The issue there coming from the keep it in the ground movement, obviously, that things you just have to transition off of fossil fuels to get to that full 1.5 uh, degree uh, warming limitation. So, uh, but I do take your point that that's a really interesting near-term near term solution. What else you got, Shane? Um, so yeah, that, that, that's on that front. And I think that's a good reminder from both you guys that, that there is a difference, A, between being an environmentalist, you know, cover to cover and, and being hyper-focused on climate. And there's different, you know, tolerance levels for different, uh, different types of policy. Because there are technologies out there that can do this, that can capture that methane. But, you know, as I learned from my time in the government, the banks never want to do the first project. They don't want to take that risk. So if the government can finance the deployment of some of these technologies to test them out and they work, then the banks can come in behind that and, you know, finance it from, you know, from that point forward. 
But that's an area where we need the government to intervene right now. Brandon. And that sort of goes back to my original three principles. This is an area where you'd be adding economic value as a result of government investment. And that is, I think, the balance that I'd like to strike, at least in my sort of solutions framework. Um, And we're going to see a lot of that. You know, now I'm going to talk about carbon and a lot of that's going to require some government money, to be quite frank. So now getting into, you know, phasing down carbon emissions, which, of course, is the most controversial of all these. Any listener to this show knows I'm a huge fan of electrification of everything. And I've come to find in discussions that when people hear that, they think about EVs. EVs are critically important, but this world is much bigger. So first of all, let's look at just EVs. There's electric transportation, not just you know cars that, that individuals drive, but public transportation fleets, corporate truck fleets, school buses. Uh, Senator Merkley from Oregon just introduced a bill to provide zero interest loans to electric buses and charging infrastructure. So that's the kind of creative solution that isn't particularly offensive to anyone, regardless of your ideological background, but could help you know, move the needle. We need to think outside the box with other things too, like indoor agriculture that'll save energy and water and comes with land use benefits and allow us to still you know, feed our population and, and grow important crops with a far less um, significant carbon footprint. Automating and electrifying industrial equipment, building entire communities, complexes, and subdivisions with absolutely no gas feeder lines. So there was a project up in Sacramento, the Sacramento uh, Municipal Utility District, just committed to with the development company where they're going to build a community that is going to be fully electrified. There will be no gas lines, no natural gas lines going into this community, into any of the homes. So that'll be a really good case study. Uh, This requires action at every level of government. So you need to look at wholesale power rules to update the value that clean energy provides. They have resilience and reliability attributes that aren't the ones we're talking about with coal, but they do exist. And those should be valued in wholesale power markets. The federal government, as Brandon alluded to before, They can incentivize a lot of these things, incentivize electric end uses through efficiency programs, tax credits, grants, research and development. I would argue for a fully refundable tax credit on any purchase or construction aimed at electrifying residences or commercial complex. Um, We can talk about that forever, but I'll I'll move on. Uh, States can allow utilities to invest in and rate-based distribution grid infrastructure updates, even behind the meter technologies. If the homeowner wants to have an EV charger, They want that make ready work done, but they can't quite afford it. If the utility is willing to get in there and do that, that would be a way to, to, you know, speed up deployment and then update building codes to require reward uh, electric appliance connections, which some states have done and and some um, utilities and and PUCs have engaged in pilot projects on that. Then moving on to actually capturing and using or storing carbon. So you have CCS, which of course everyone knows about if you can burn a coal or honestly, even, even natural gas and capture the methane of the carbon. Uh, and use that as a commodity, uh, whether for, you know, other types of enhanced recovery or whether for storage underground, that's good. And then I think it's um, former Secretary Moniz who's working with a group of people on actually taking carbon, sequestering carbon out of the atmosphere that's already been emitted. That's a place where I think government should be pouring a lot of R&D money because we might not be close to where we want to be on that front. But if we get there, that solves a lot more problems than almost anything else that we're talking about. So I'd love to see a lot of investment in that. Um, investing in more economically feasible small-scale nuclear reactor R&D. I haven't been tracking this very closely, but when I was working in government, that was not a partisan issue. Republicans loved um, nuclear as a general rule. Uh, a lot of Democrats did as well, and both parties agreed that you know some of the, some nuclear issues are more difficult to deal with, and that small modular reactors could solve some of those problems, waste problems, and other problems. And then you know finally, just other seemingly non-related items: housing costs. Um, land use, zoning, corporate decision making, things that would shorten commutes, uh, you know, motivate more people to carpool, 
you know, find ways to use less energy without banning it, but by being smarter about how you plan your communities. And now I've been long-winded, so I'm going to turn it over to Brandon or, or Julia and let you guys tell me how I'm wrong. Yeah, no, I think those are all fascinating points. Kind of working backwards, I think just a couple pieces of context I'll add, not to disagree, but just sort of a state of affairs. When we think about how this all gets done. Modular reactors, for instance, we see within the climate community a very fierce debate over whether or not nuclear should even be part of the conversation. They talk about wasting money, obviously, on traditional nuclear power plants, which have not succeeded uh, of late. There's only one being built in the U.S. right now. And then modular reactors, still very expensive. A certain group say this is the path forward. And yet you see infighting there, which I find so interesting. Some of the most intense fights come among climate activists or climate experts debating nuclear. So uh, agree it's an interesting solution. The practicality of it, I'm, I don't know about. CCUS, carbon capture and sequestration, utilization, the economics of it's still very challenging. So I think the utilization piece will be very interesting. Is there a way to make that economically compelling? Uh, in the meantime, you're stuck with a really tricky policy question of how much money to pour at something that doesn't have an obvious you know, benefit just yet. You mentioned building codes. California just officially finalized its rooftop solar mandate. So starting 2020, all new multifamily and single family homes will have to put solar on the roofs. I think that's a very interesting idea. And that's going to have a 14% upside to the residential solar sector in California over the next four years, according to um, Green Tech Media's research arm, Wood McKenzie. The gas point, you talked about uh, electrifying everything. Uh, I just a flag that I think there's going to be a debate over how much uh, money SoCal Gas in particular can spend on lobbying against electrification. This is something environmental groups have flagged for me, that right now the uh, that utility can use ratepayer money to advocate against electrification. So when we get into the nuts and bolts of policymaking, what the rules are is going to be interesting to watch and see how that fight ultimately goes down. Anyway, a few extra thoughts I just wanted to add there. Okay, Brandon, so I, I've just done my long-winded spiel. Let's go to you. What is your vision for future policy action? Okay, so first, I'm going to start big picture. I think I think about this in sort of long-term, medium-term, short-term buckets. Big picture, we have to get to zero emissions, net zero emissions by 2050, because that is what the scientists say. We have to design policies that reflect the science. And I am sick of after all these reports people still question the different models and such because the scientists as we've discussed have been right not just recently but for like 40 or 50 years and to the extent that they've been inaccurate it's that it's happening faster than they think there's not been one report that has said oh we were wrong it's slowing down it's not as bad as we thought so that is the premise that i operate all of my solutions from so big picture Net zero emissions, 2050. Medium term, I support the Green New Deal. And these are, you know, we're starting to flesh that out. And Alexandria Ocasio has put forward some ideas on that. You know, getting to 100% renewable energy. If it's 100% clean energy, that's fine with me. All right. We need to get rid of internal combustible engine vehicles. Uh, other countries are doing this, like China and India. Um, a federal green jobs guarantee. I support something like that. One area where I disagree with Shane is on the offsets. I give zero Fs, zero Fs about the offsets because when the Germans were attacking this country and Japanese and our you know, society was at stake, we didn't care about offsets. 
we did what we needed to, to address the problem, to solve the problem. And that's what we need to do here because climate change is every bit as a threat as, you know, the Germans and in, in, in Japan in World War II. Okay. So. But is that going to get passed? We're talking about solutions here. I'm Work talking medium term. Okay. We need to build a movement for those. I understand they're not going to get passed now. Long term, medium term, build a movement. Short term. Here's uh, where I think Shane and I have a ton in, in, in common. And, and I agreed with all of the proposals that he made for short term. I would like to see we we're making progress on power generation. We have many states like California and others that are getting to 50, 100 percent you know, clean energy. You know, I'd like to see it. I wonder if Shane agrees with a national clean energy standard. Could we get something like that done in the next two years? Could we say, you know, 50 percent by 2030 or start with something, you know, reasonable and build from there? I want to see some incentives for deploying energy storage that unlocks renewables. You know, the issue with renewables is you have this variability. The, the sun doesn't shine at night. The wind doesn't always blow. And this is a huge economic opportunity for our country. And we've learned that when we deploy technologies, the costs come down. That's why solar and wind have gotten so cheap. We learned that in the Obama administration. As we financed these technologies and deployed them, the costs came down. So let's deploy lots of energy storage in this country. California has a mandate on this. You know, can we come up with a federal mandate? Can we incentivize to build batteries in this country right now we're all in right now we're totally dependent on elon musk and the gigafactory meanwhile you have other manufacturers like samsung and lg chem they're building their factories but their product goes to asia first there's a shortage of batteries here there's more demand than we can produce we should have 15 or 20 gigafactories the government could help incentivize that we could design policies to do that i talked to a guy who's who's making a zinc battery very interesting okay and he i said where do you manufacture he said china i said what would it cost you know to manufacture in the united states he said if i got 15 million dollars in help i'd build a factory in the united states we can come up with that right we can do that um i would like to see the ev tax credit uh extended and have that cap lifted you know you shouldn't be punished for being you know aggressive on this like like tesla was so i'm wondering you know with shane We've talked a lot of about, you know, what can we do in the next two years? Do you think we could get the EV tax credit uh, extended and the cap lifted? Do you think we could come up with a national clean energy mandate in the next two years? Can we incentivize building battery manufacturing facilities here? And can we get a mandate for deploying energy storage? So, so jumping in on, on some of that, Brandon, and I, I, I really enjoyed that because I, I got so excited about what I was doing that I didn't work through some of the details as precisely as you did. So I think you know, the EV tax credit, there's got to be a deal to be made there. I mean, I think we've both seen the back and forth in the news about some senators wanting to end it, the president maybe wanting to end it. I am a true believer that once a provision like that is in law and we've reached a situation where we're going to have GM and Tesla pass their caps and you're only going to have foreign manufacturers getting U.S. tax credits, I think there's a deal to be made. I think you made a really good point on storage, and that's a lot of the R&D I'd want to see, but also you know, grants and loans, as you mentioned, because I talked a little bit about wholesale power markets and then talked about distribution grid infrastructure. And battery storage at different scale is going to be very helpful in either one of those. What renewables can do in wholesale markets when paired with batteries is going to change, I think, the way that we need to look at power markets, maybe capacity markets. Uh, and sort of how renewables can help balance load and, and, and enhance resilience. On the distribution side, obviously, 
integrating renewables becomes much simpler with storage. So I agree with you with all those things. And I think the three things you just asked about are doable in the near term. I don't know, you know, within the next year, but are very doable in the near term. A national clean energy standard, I think, is a much heavier lift, but I would look at it as a step one, step two. Once you fully integrate storage and renewables into wholesale power markets in a way that they could be together, once you invest in an enhanced distribution grid that can do these things we want to see them do, we might see that a renewable energy standard is much easier than we thought because once the technology is in place, adding load is going to become far simpler. So I'd like to see that technical work done. I'd like to see the government participate in funding that and facilitating that. And then let's have a conversation with utilities, knowing what you know now, seeing what you've deployed over the last couple of years, what is a realistic number? How, can, how much you know, renewable generation can you utilize um, while still maintaining all the, you know, all the things that we care about, reliability, resilience, and all sorts of things? Shane, would you support, we've discussed this briefly in other episodes, but something like a race to the top for energy. President Obama did this for education. He basically created a pot of money and he said, if you change your regulations to satisfy the following criteria, we'll give you a bunch of money from the federal government. So could you create a race to the top for energy where you put a big pot of money from the federal government and you say, if you change your state regulatory policies to adapt you know, to uh, this following criteria, cleaning up your grid, decarbonizing transportation, we'll give you a bunch of money. Would you support something like that? So first of all, yes, I would support it. And, and honestly, that's very different, but also similar in theory to what we talk about, you know, with the Montreal Protocol and the phase down. It's not command and control. It's rewarding. Um, it's rewarding people who advance the technology sooner than others. So I've always supported that framework. And I think that'd be much more palatable, honestly, to the Republican side of the aisle in that states get to make their own decisions. And if they achieve at a, at a high level, that's going to benefit the entire country then they can be rewarded for that. I'm not sitting here telling you that that would get unanimous Republican support, but I wouldn't I wouldn't be laughed out of an office having that discussion. I truly don't believe that. Okay, so I'm hearing a race to the top program for energy, extending the federal EV tax credits, an energy storage tax credit and possibly a mandate, potentially a national clean energy target, although that's a little further of a stretch, and then ratifying the Kigali amendment of the Montreal Protocol. So I know there's a few other things that we discussed in there, like building codes, et cetera, but it sounds like we've got something here. We've got some specific things that could get done coming from you guys to people who actually work on these energy policy issues every day. So I'm curious to see if and how these concepts get taken up. Will they end up in a Green New Deal or perhaps more realistically, an infrastructure bill? There's been a lot of chatter about how infrastructure could possibly be an area of collaboration between the Democrats and Republicans, and specifically the White House and President Trump. But so far, nothing's happened on that. Democrats, as you may know, proposed a $1 trillion infrastructure bill last year, paid for by reversing tax cuts for corporations and wealthy Americans. But that didn't go anywhere. In recent days, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer penned an op-ed in the Washington Post re-upping the conversation on infrastructure. He called for a bill that would, quote, transition our country to a clean energy economy and mitigate the risks the U.S. already faces from climate change. Schumer said he wrote a letter to Trump describing the policies that Democrats would go for as part of this bill, specifically calling for permanent tax credits for clean energy production, energy storage, electric vehicles, and energy efficient homes. He also mentioned investment in conservation and reducing the release of methane pollution, and all of this, Schumer said, will result in good paying green jobs. So many similarities here to what you guys have been saying. 
But arguably the more interesting part of this is the actual letter and the politics surrounding it. Schumer has actually drawn a line in the sand in writing this, saying that infrastructure has to go hand in hand with climate. And the next Congress, Democrats will have to force the issue, he said. And I don't think there's any doubt that this was motivated by the Sunrise Movement and calls for a Green New Deal. The question is, now that Schumer has put this out in the world, will that prove to be an issue in negotiations down the line? But that's something we'll have to bookmark and come back to in season two. Speaking of which, I want to end this show with a couple of thoughts on what we learned in season one. Around Thanksgiving, comedian Bill Maher made an interesting point on his show about coping with toxic partisanship that I wanted us to wrestle with here. He said to his audience to just stop talking politics. Stop talking politics. Stop talking politics to your friends and family. You're not going to change their minds, he said. Everyone thinks you have to reach out and engage to understand the other side, but he says that never works. In fact, it only intensifies the partisan divide. And he even used climate change to illustrate this. We never used to fight over politics 24-7. If somebody said, eh, hot enough for you today, the other guy didn't say, yes, yes it is, because of your party's environmental policies. (laughs) True though that may be. But saying it at every opportunity doesn't help. Mars' point is that Americans need to talk about other things than politics, like crafts or cooking, anything. That and sounds so, boring. Right. <laughs> but it's an interesting point. Um, so I wanted to put to you guys, what have you taken away from this season about getting into this bipartisan mess and trying to reach across the aisle? It hasn't always been easy for us. And when you hear that point about stop talking about politics. You know, are we making it worse by having these conversations? How have you guys been sitting with this? Brandon? So I have thought deeply about the several hundred hours that we've spent together uh, doing this season. And, and here's, I think, my conclusions. One, I think the political discussion gets much easier when you start with just basic human values that we agree on. I'm going to tell you a story about Shane. So when we went out for our dinner uh, to Nobu before we had the dinner, Shane was telling us he started a journal uh, that he is using to convey his thoughts to his kids so that they know him. Because he said, you never know what happens. You know, I could leave 60 years, something could happen tomorrow, but I want my kids to know me. So he's been writing down his thoughts so that they know that they feel loved and appreciated. And I shared with him that I had a good friend from the Obama administration, Michael Robertson, who died recently. He's 40 years old, died of cancer. He's got an 18-month-year-old son that will never know him. And his dying wish was that his son uh, would get to know him through the stories that we can pass on. So I was saying to Shane, you know, that's really great that you appreciate that you can do this. Uh, And the next day, I got a text message from Shane where he said, I've been thinking a lot about your friend, and if there's anything I can do for his family, please let me know. So here's what we can agree on you know, a parent's love for their child, uh, that someone's life was taken too early. Those are just human things that we can agree on. Shane and I both like sports. We go watch soccer games together. We have fun. From that foundation, we can get to politics, I think. The, the, the political conversation is easier when you create shared bonds over just human things that we can all agree on. On the politics, we started this, you know, this show with the fact that we both agree climate change is happening and it's man-made. That's a foundation. We can build from there. Now, you know, I, I can be too idealistic sometimes. So I do think I agree with many of my friends that trying to waste time on persuading people who don't think that climate change is happening 
is probably worthless uh, and not a good use of resources because there are limited time, limited money, and there are some people that we're just never going to persuade. I've never seen somebody post something on Facebook and they all of a sudden say, oh, yeah, now I believe in climate change, right? But we have had some people like, you know, Bridenstine, the NASA administrator, who have changed their minds. So I am, I am practical about that. And now that we've got this foundation, you know, human values, we started from agreeing on climate that it's happening. We now have shown in this episode that there are some practical policies in the short term that we both agree on. And so my view is, I still don't know if we're going to get consensus on this issue from Republicans. I'm really nervous about the stuff that, that Trump is doing where he's just flat out doesn't believe the government or scientists and what is happening in the Fox News propaganda machine that is making this so much more difficult. So I don't know if we're going to get consensus. Here's what I do know. We will never get consensus if we don't talk. And from talking in these hundreds of hours, I've learned a lot about Shane. I've learned that Republicans don't always approach this from fear and hate. There are some, you know, other reasons why they don't support some of these things. And so I have learned a tremendous amount. And my operating theory to solve this is I'm talking to Alexandria Ocasio's team, uh, the far progressive, you know, on this. I am talking to Democratic moderates who don't want to go that far, but will go, you know, further than the Republicans. I'm talking to Republicans like Shane. And so I think in that, if we're all talking, I, kn- I think that's a way forward. We can solve problems if we're talking. We will not solve problems if we're not. I love that. That's a really good point. I uh, 100% agree. Shane, I guess what would be your final, you know, reflections on the season? Yeah, I mean, so I agree with Brandon 100%, but then I also agree with with Bill Maher 100%, and I'll sort of walk through that. So on what I learned, you know, I, I first of all, Brandon, that's very kind that you actually have me kind of sad over here, um, hearing hearing you say that and, and how it, you know, sort of resonated with you. Um, but But I had a, you know, I think that these conversations need to be had and that they're very helpful and very valuable, but they are more helpful and more valuable when you have that sort of friend, whether it's a basis of trust, whether it's a basis of friendship, whether it's a basis of knowing that this person likes you, cares about you, isn't there to, to try to hurt you or like, you know, get you to say something that they can, they can use against you. And, you know, we, we did the, um, the live event. This was one of our earlier events. I think it was March. Um, maybe it was May down in San Diego at the green tech uh, media solar uh, forum. And, uh, I, you know, texted Brandon, we'd known each other, but not, not as well as we do now. Uh, to see if we wanted to meet for a beer the night before because we'd both sort of gotten in and, and didn't know what. And I was game to talk about anything. I would have been excited uh, to talk about the show the next day. I would have been, you know, excited to talk about anything. Uh, but, you know, I was hoping to just hang out. And um, we we had, I think we watched a hockey game or two. I watched some basketball um, and just hung out and talked. I, I made fun of his electric vehicle. As, you guys know I love electric vehicles, but I mean, we just, we were doing friend stuff. And, and that creates, I think, a foundation that makes a lot of these discussions easier. I learned um, the, the structure matters. So we met with a lot of different interest groups when we were up in San Francisco. We met with advocates. We met with political advocates, policy advocates. Some of them are probably pretty closely aligned with me. Some of them are not. But the structure of the conversation was respectful dialogue about solutions. And I really liked and enjoyed every single person uh, that I interacted with, people that I never, ever would have spoken to, I'm sure. Uh, not not out of any sort of vitriol, but just wouldn't have in my life for any reason. And now when I think about projects, I look through the business cards we've collected. I looked at the notes we've taken from past episodes. 
Like, who would be good to reach out to? Would Green for All be good for this? I know they don't agree with me on most things, but maybe they'd be a really good fit to, to have this conversation with. And so I really learned that there's a lot of, of people that can be helpful and that want to be helpful, regardless of ideology, if you get to know them first. Uh, where I agree with Bill Maher is I think sometimes because of politics, we never actually get to know them. So we actually foreclose upon those opportunities. Um, you know, I don't want to get into this in a lot of detail, but, you know, the Colin Kaepernick thing has been a thing uh, for the last couple of years. And it bothers me for the same uh, different reasons than it bothers other people. I don't want to get into the debate about, you know, who's a proud American and who's not. It's that football is just one of those things that no matter how you feel politically, I really like to sit down with people and watch football. I want to argue about stats. I want to argue about who's the best ever. I want to argue about, you know, how was someone who was drafted in the seventh round is so good? You know, how was Tom Brady allegedly the best quarterback in NFL history drafted in the fifth round? And I can't do that when we start fighting during the national anthem. And so I like the idea of keeping politics out of everything that's not politics, creating friendships and strong foundations. And then you can and should talk politics. You should feel free to express yourself. You should feel free to debate and try to educate and, and be willing to learn. I'm certainly willing to learn. And I've learned a lot from Brandon. But I don't think you're ever going to be in a position to win hearts and minds and actually have a respectful dialogue if everything about life is so political that we never actually get to build any sort of relationships based on, you know, trust and an honest a desire for well-being. So I kind of feel like a, an armchair therapist here, but, but I, uh, that's sort of, how, that's what I took away from this season is I want to see politics less in everything, but politics, but I want to see a lot more dialogue within that political realm. Interesting. Well, I have to just echo that I have learned a ton from both of you. And I hope that our listeners have also found this enlightening, educational, challenging, but interesting above all. And I do feel like there's a role for just having these conversations. Now it's time to end with our Say Something Nice segment of the show, where our Democrat and Republican co-hosts have to say something redeeming about the opposing political party. I want to go first because I was so excited for this segment. My favorite listener, who also happens to be Brandon's mom, tweeted about how much she enjoys... Which we only just found out, by the way. Shane was like, we have a listener that, that, that tweeted at me and she said something nice. And Brandon's like, yeah, that's my mom. <laughs> and I love that. Um, mine is Representative Scott Peters, Democrat from California. I've actually had the opportunity to meet with his staff on several occasions. He has always been, at least in my view, I've never met him personally, one of those lawmakers who actually tries to get things done, is actually trying to deliver on some of his policy ideas. And he was speaking uh, in this occasion, in this interview that I read, as part of the New Democrat Coalition. It's a group of more than 90 centrist Democrats that represent a third of the House Democratic Caucus. And they're looking for more modest strides in combating climate change and moving away from fossil fuels, but in a way that they think is going to be palatable. Um, and so I'm reading this directly from the article now. They don't dispute the need for action, but they see more modest moves as a better way to potentially get bills through the GOP-controlled Senate. Says Representative Peters, you don't make progress by making speeches. You have to work with Republicans and Democrats. And I just want to leave it on that quote because that is something that I think I've heard Brandon say. That's something that I've said. That's something that, that, that Julia said. But I do think there is a difference between giving a speech and trying to deliver. There's nothing wrong with speeches as long as they're followed with action. But I, I want to see more lawmakers like him step up and try to deliver here. I think that's a really interesting point. And one I think that there's a lot of kind of tension around right now, again, bringing it back to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, because she's again being accused of not acting enough and only talking. And yet I think uh, some people would say there's value in talking when you don't have tons of 
power yet. That is actually your only real tool to play with. And yet I totally agree with you that you have to find ways to reach consensus and and have conversations that are, that are oriented around action. And I think that's a tension that's actually going to play out within the Democratic Party as well as across the aisle around just action versus talk and big picture versus near term, moderate versus bold and, and progressive. So I think that's both an interesting takeaway and something to watch for going forward. Yeah, I think people try to simplify this, right? We can try to win as many Democratic seats as possible, but also be talking to Republicans and try to get some near-term compromises. They're not mutually exclusive. Yeah, I found it interesting that some people, you know, thinking back to Dave Roberts' point that Democrats need to be bold, and then when Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez came out with a bold plan, a lot of Democrats were like, whoa, 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 that, that's crazy. You're going to disrupt the whole process here. Uh, even though they've said for years Republicans aren't doing enough, aren't doing enough, there's no action, and yet when they kind of got this bold vision, people kind of balked at it and said, no, 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 incrementalism. So again, we'll just have to footnote that. Of course, here on this podcast, we always, I think, go with your philosophy, Brandon, of two hands. One is pushing forward on the things you know and care about and want to be bold. And the other one is extending uh, it out to the other side and trying to bring them across. You don't have to compromise your values in that, right? You can, you can think about how do we get these long-term wins that we're seeking, building movements, getting as many Democrats elected to office as possible, but in the short term, you know, having conversations about with Republicans on some short-term wins because we, we can't do it without them. Right. It's not possible. <laughs> the math. There's math. There is we math. Have to, there is math involved in this. All right, Brandon, over to you. What's your say something nice? I want to say something nice just about President uh, George H.W. Bush. You know, he just passed away and his record of service um, is incredible. You know, go, from the time that he was, you know, 17 years old and volunteering to serve uh, in the war, um, he dedicated his life as a public servant. On climate, you know, his his issue, his legacy is mixed. He, sa- he said, those who think we are powerless to do anything about the greenhouse effect, forget about the White House effect. As president, I intend to do something about it. That was a 1988 campaign speech. Um, now, he did the Clean Air Act. He did, you know, cap and trade. He did a lot of very environmentally friendly policies. Uh, but... You know, it was during his era that things really started to go astray on climate where, you know, we had some consensus. And if he would have, you know, he could have used that opportunity to do more and we'd be in a lot better position now if he had done that. But, you know, that's OK. Um, you know, nobody's perfect. Uh, he I, I he was an incredible leader. Uh, I wish there were more Republicans like George H.W. Bush now. 2020 is around the corner. We are going to be talking a lot more about leaders and leadership styles and thinking about the 2020 presidential election. So that's definitely going to be on the agenda for season two. I want to quickly say a thank you to our intern for this season, Chloe Ziliak. We really appreciate your help. Andrew, Bree, Victoria, other people who've helped us make this podcast possible. We really, really appreciate it. It's all been free help. It's all been free help. It's all been man hours, women hours. Um, And it's been so, so fun. And uh, we're excited to take a little break. I'm going to Africa. I'm going to be literally offline. No politics for me for the next three weeks. And then we will launch season two. And so we just want to say thanks so much to our listeners for uh, for tuning in. This has been a really exciting process. We love engaging with you. So keep tweeting at us. Uh, we're at poly underscore climate, P-O-L-I underscore climate on Twitter. Of course, we're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, pretty much anywhere you listen to podcasts, you can find Political Climate. Uh, subscribe, leave us a review, 
Thanks again. Wishing you the best holiday season and we'll see you in the new year.